Welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host, and today's guest is Anthony Doerr. Anthony Doerr is the current writer-in-residence for the state of Idaho and the author of the short story collection, The Shell Collector, the novel about grace, and the memoir, Four Seasons in Rome. A three-time O'Henry Award winner and a 2010 Guggenheim Fellow, Anthony Doerr also writes a regular column on science books for the Boston Globe and is a frequent teacher at the Ten House Writers' Workshop here in Portland. He's here today to talk about his much-anticipated new short story collection, Memory Wall, published by Scribner in July of this year. Welcome to Between the Covers. Thanks, David. So your, your book with the six stories, Memory Wall, each of those stories is in a totally different location. It's in a different time period, and there's not much in common um, between each of the different protagonists, yet each of the stories seems to be unified by this question of memory. How did that end up becoming an organizing principle for you? Yeah, great question. Um, well, first of all, I feel like within a story collection, um, you have the potential, anyway, to roam a lot more widely than you might be able to in a novel. I think that's true for a writer and a reader. I think I'm always drawn to story collections that take me into different lives, very substantially different lives from story to story, very discrete stories versus linked stories. So I thought it might be interesting to try to link them rather by place or protagonist link them by a kind of a neurological thread, which is memory, you know, and how can I use different characters at different stages in their life? You know, I have a 14-year-old girl, I have several elderly characters in the book, and ask, what does memory mean to them? You know, what is, how does memory make your life coherent? And how does losing your memory maybe start to destroy the fabric of who you are? So given that these these, uh, characters are so different from you, a Chinese woman, um, collecting seeds in a village that's going to be destroyed due to a dam or a uh, demented elderly woman in a futuristic South Africa. These are very different characters than than you, a 30-something white man in Idaho. Um, do you use um, your own memory in making the stories? Is remembering um, your own life somehow part of putting the stories together? Or is writing what you know not really part of the process for you? I think on the surface level, I'm not interested in writing what I know. I think uh, my life is sort of boring, you know? I mean, yeah, I'm a white guy in Idaho, and I like that. I want my life to be containable and bourgeois even, you know, and safe. And I I use reading and writing as a vehicle for empathy to try to understand other lives. And travel works works in the same, similar way for me, too. So on the surface level, no, I'm not writing about what I know. I mean, if I want to write about a violin maker, I have no problem doing three months research about violin making. You know, in this book, I got very interested in Three Gorges Dam. That was the first story I wrote for the book and uh, trying to understand what was going on in China while I'm driving my kids to preschool. You know, like the scale of this, you know, the largest hydroelectric project ever attempted by human beings. Uh, but fundamentally, on a much more subliminal, subsurface level, I think, yeah, you are ultimately writing about what you know. You're writing about either falling in love or being afraid or um, getting lost. You know, um, Flannery O'Connor said, by the time you're 14, you've probably lived enough to write good books for the rest of your life. You know, by then, you know, you've gone through a, a pretty intense gamut of emotions, probably. And maybe you haven't fallen in love yet. Maybe you have at 14. So I feel like it's a limiting advice to to young writers of whatever age, young in their career, to say you should only write about what you know because that implies, okay, I'm good at building cabinets, so all my characters should have you know carpentry skills. You know, and I think that's more useful if you think 
you know, um, if you think about it, there are commonalities in human experience. A woman in Beirut may cry for the same reasons a woman in Kansas will. You know, her kid is sick or something. And once you understand that, you know, even in between men and women, sometimes it's scary to try to cross that gender line and invent, you know, now I'm going to invent a woman's life, even though I'm a man. Once you start to give yourself the freedom to do that, I think your fiction can often improve. You mentioned the role of, of research. Um, how much of what you're writing is, is imagined, and how much are you actually, um, do you go to the places that you're going to write about to get the details right or the voices correct for a character in Lithuania or a character in Germany? Um, or is, is some of that just um, coming from what you already know? Uh, and what, what prompts the research in the first place? Yeah, great question. If my students are always kind of resist the idea of research they're like we're in fiction writing class you know we came here to escape research <laughs> you know we want to use our imagination but for me uh fiction writing is almost an excuse to try to learn more things about the world you know to follow interests and passions that i have whether it's shells or you know the holocaust or um yeah memory how memories are stored in our brains i think that stuff's really interesting so i mean if you want an equation i think it's maybe 30 percent imagination and 30% experience and 40% research. So sure, travel's a big part of that. Yeah, I've been to, I think all the locations in the book, except for mainland China, I've only been to Hong Kong. So for the story called Village 113 about the Three Gorges Dam, I used a bunch of notes I have from Hong Kong for the city city scenes and the rest of it, I just kind of used imagination and looked at a lot of photos of the Yangtze uh, yeah, Lithuania. There's a story in this book set in Lithuania about fishing for endangered sturgeon on the Numunas River. I went and taught there for a month about 10 years ago, and so I had a lot of journal entries and descriptions of places that I could steal and put in, cannibalize and put into the story. So I keep a journal anywhere I go, and tra- traveling in particular helps stimulate that. You know, things are more interesting when you're in a strange place. You can pay attention better, especially when people aren't speaking English around you. You know, you kind of retreat and become one big eye looking out. And uh, keeping a journal has helped me not only just stay in practice, kind of stay in writing shape, but it's a really useful thing in, if you go back and start excavating sentences from a trip three or four years previous for something you're working on. So uh, there's a story in here set in Wyoming, and I had gone to Wyoming to give a couple of readings, and never knowing I would set a story there. Later, I had a bunch of inf- you know a bunch of detail about a storm, a big snowstorm, and the way the highway looked trying to drive through that storm, and I ended up just plugging all that into the story I was working on set in Wyoming. Well, you mentioned storms, and and uh, the weather plays a large role in a lot of your writing, and and as does um, the presence of animals and plants, and it almost gives this magical sense of inter- interdependence is what I would call it. Like no matter how bad humans act towards each other or, or how horribly they're behaving towards the environment, they can't escape being somehow fundamentally part of the environment and part of nature. Is that something intended? I, I feel like there's a sense of um, of harmony even when you're dealing with really difficult subjects. And, and it's evoked in the, in the covers of your books, too, with the snowflakes and the symmetry of the shells and the fossils, um, where you're dealing with a lot of pain, but yet somehow the um, natural world is very present in a way that feels uh, almost healing in, in your writing. Thanks, David. Um, yeah, I mean, that's certainly very intentional. My interests have always been tending toward 
the outside. You know, I, I think it's even an artificial construction to say that there is, you know, an indoors and an outdoors, and there's the human world and the natural world. You know, we have bacteria in our guts, and we're ingesting nature all day long when we eat and uh, breathing the air that, you know, we need to breathe. And so I think sometimes this, it's an artificial lens we've made for ourselves or an artificial gate between us and the natural world. We are the natural world and that's what's delivered us here. Evolution delivered us here. Um, so I try to ask questions about that in, in my work. And I think storytelling is a really unique, uh, useful way to try to address questions of science. Uh, you know, I think, that's another artificial division that there's a, a humanities building on a school and a campus and there's a um, science building. And the fact that those two things uh, are somehow separated in the curricula that we teach our kids, I think, is sometimes a, a, a flaw. They're both ways of asking questions about the world, interrogating the world and um, – you know, there's nothing wrong with saying that I'm going to, uh, somebody would like to use lyricism to ask questions about the world, or I'm going to use, you know, the scientific process. I don't know. It's just, it's a big question. You know, I'm really engaged in trying to understand and display a character in his or her landscape and how that character writes on that landscape and how the landscape writes on the character too. And, you know, it's, uh, very much a synthetic, um, process when you're inventing a character because for me the place the character's in is an integral part of that character so you have to kind of know when you're conceiving of a story where is it going to be and who is this going to be they both start coming to you at the same time you know it's not like you can change and say oh now i'm going to move the whole story to boston because then you have to change the people as well in the story we're talking today with anthony door you're listening to between the covers and i'm david Naiman, your host um Anthony, so your stories don't feel like they have an, an overt agenda, yet at the same time they feel like they're moral and that they have um, you know, environmental and political considerations in them um, implicitly, not like you're arguing for some point. Is that, is that something you see them having yourself? And is that, are those concerns things that motivate you in your writing? Yeah, thanks. Um, yes, I'm very interested in uh, asking questions about what we think is right and what we think is wrong through stories. Uh, easiest examples, we can go back to that story, Village 113, about the Three Gorges Dam. You know, the more I read about it, the more I learned. It's very, it's too simplistic to just say, this is a terrible project. You know, it drowned uh, a thousand villages, a hundred towns, and ten cities. You know, literally submerged all the memory and history in those places. And so, you know, it's very easy to look at photographs of those places and be like, this is going to be gone forever. You know, these statues will be gone forever. That's ridiculous. You know, that's terrible. We're displacing all these people. But then the more you read about it, the more you think, okay, the tons of flooding downstream, maybe this is a much cleaner source of power for cities than burning coal. And, um, you know, there's something to be said for creating a huge amount of jobs for people as well. So um, it's not just about displacement and evil. It's, it's a very, very complicated issue. And so I think storytelling is a way to say, I'm just going to show you the players in the situation and let you as a reader try to figure out, you know, what's being lost here and... Um, what's what's right or wrong? Maybe those aren't even the relevant questions. Just look how complicated this human situation is. 
And um, if you, I think if you're empathetic enough towards your characters, well, you can write about abortion, you can write about the Tea Party, you can write about very um, hot-button kinds of things if you just root it in the individual, one individual's experience of the situation, you know, and try not to guide what will happen to that character by any political motivation. One of the things that it's really poignant about Village 113 is it's grappling with memory, but it's a woman who's collecting the seeds of her village, and the village hasn't yet disappeared yet. It's going underwater soon, and you feel that sense of foreboding. So in a way, it's um, trying to uh, record and, and memorize the things that ha- that are not actually in the past yet. It's it's very poignant, this idea that um, she's trying to to evoke memories of things that are still that very day right in front of her. Oh, good. Uh, great. That's very intentional. I feel that as a dad. Like, my kids are growing up so quickly that you do feel like you've got to start recording these things that are right in front of you. Somehow you've got to get them memorized because they're going to be gone soon you know i mean all i feel that like literally our lives are like this village that is going to be flooded and you know we only get one shot at this and it's so beautiful and interesting and you don't want to not appreciate every day that you get on this earth and yet you know you of course you get angry and get in line at the supermarket and start feeling like you're the center of the world and you know, that's what I really love about fiction writing is it forces you to step outside of yourself. It seems like you're, you're, you're by yourself, you're alone in your room. It seems like a very selfish kind of thing to do. But fundamentally, you're training your brain to think outside the self. And, and that's true with reading, too, I think. You know, reading is still fundamentally the sharpest, deepest form of empathy. You know, there are some, obviously some great films out there, tons of uh, interesting ways and plays to enter another person's psyche. But when you can mimic the patterns of thought through language in the way you can in novels and short stories, you can still enter more deeply than any other art form, I think, the psyche of another person, even an imagined person. It's kind of an amazing thing. It's beautiful. It's magic. You know, these little black characters on a white page can transport you into Anne Frank's brain, and she is dead. You know, she know, lives still in the sentences, but she's dead. It's incredible. In your title story, Memory Wall, which takes place in the future, we have one of the main protagonists, the elderly woman with dementia. Uh, There's now technology to record her memories on cartridges, which she can then replay in her brain. Um, What role do you see um, with the changing technology now? We can record everything. We can, I mean, you're talking about your kids. You could film them all day if you wanted to. is that changing literature in in your mind? Is, and, and did that question come up for you in trying to write a story set in the future? Yeah, uh, very interesting. Um, yeah, just, let me just, it sparks a thought about my kids first. Like, you're right. My kids are so much more recorded than I was even, and certainly than my father was. I have one picture of my dad in his childhood, and there are probably 40 of me, and there are probably 3,000 of my kids, you know? And my wife has a flip camera, and... Already, my kids' own memories are being kind of determined by the videos they've seen of themselves, kind of. You know, that's even altered their truer memories because now they go on trips and they see the trips recorded and played back to them, and that determines how they remember the trip. It's amazing. So I'm, I don't know. I'm just very interested. I, have, I don't think that's right or wrong. I think, you know, I think it's great that you can record the things you do more intensely now and you can go take a video on your phone of anything you see basically it's remarkable 
In terms of, yeah, th- that story originated because a magazine called McSweeney's in San Francisco asked a bunch of us to conceive the world in 2024. They thought it would be interesting to say, leap forward 25 years and what's the world going to look like? And um, I had been reading a lot about the brain and about our efforts to try to locate how we record memories in our brain. There's the kind of classic old wives tale that your um your body's always renewing its cells you're always rebuilding proteins and so theoretically there's not a single cell right now in your body david that was there when you were a child you know even your brain cells have renewed themselves so how in the world can you have any memories of when you were a child you know they can't be encoded in the protein so some people argue maybe they're uh, they're stored in the extracellular space, and then the proteins are rebuilt to kind of fill the shape of the previous memory. So, I mean, who knows? But I just that got me very interested. Maybe we can stain the interior of our brains and understand physically what memories might look like. And, you know, this idea that our brain is so plastic and we're actually making, when we make new memories, we're making new cells to record them is incredibly interesting to me. That is fascinating. Yeah. And, and what about writers who have, have in the past who have pondered memory did you go to any of them i, I mean the obvious the most obvious example might be proust but also oh. nabokov with speak memory or, or other writers who have who have meditated on this same theme were, were any of them influences or inspirations for you or did you find yourself uh, mostly doing it through your own experiences with memory um, maybe not for exactly looking at how writers look at memory per se, but so many writers, of course, are an example to me. And, you know, I've never read Proust, but yes, yeah, Speak Memory by Nabokov is a very, it's a gorgeous book. And the idea that uh, he's very much rooting indi- individual within a larger historical context. You know, it's about one person. It's not about World War II, for example. You know, he skips through World War II in like a paragraph in that book. Uh, I think... Um, maybe Cormac McCarthy in the way he addressed, uh, say in Blood Meridian, you know, it's kind of revisionist history, really. It's like, hey, look, we were savages too in a lot of ways. You know, Europeans were. Um, you know, that has something to do with memory. Uh, mostly, mostly I'm looking at writers for how they use language and how they use build sentences, and those are my examples. You know, somebody like Andrea Barrett is this beautiful writer of historians, and you could argue historical fiction. She's... You know, I'm looking at her in terms of form and craft and less about, you know, how is she thinking about memory? Maybe Oliver Sacks, you know, I've always read a lot of his books and certainly, you know, he's a very good writer. I'm not looking at him so much in terms of craft as maybe larger medical and neurological questions, stuff like that. I actually thought of Blood Meridian when reading Memory Wall, not because they deal with even remotely the same uh, topic, but... When Cormac McCarthy writes, some of the scenes are are so um, powerfully horrible, yet so beautiful at the same time. Like they're lyrical and poetic, and yet dealing with some of the the most difficult themes in humanity. And um, and you have that mixture of uh, I think you have that mixture of of um, hope and magic and wonder, yet dealing with very difficult themes, whether it be the disappearing of a village or a Holocaust survivor with a seizure, di- seizure disorder. Um, it's a very interesting mix. So it was interesting that you brought up him as a, as a possible influence. Yeah, thanks. I mean, for me, I'm very interested in this idea of defamiliarization as a writer. Like, how do writers 
um, fight cliche, fight the kind of uh, encrustation of the familiar that you get when you see words combined in, in very familiar ways, like uh, fall in a heap or eyes that glint. You know, you're always seeing somebody rummage in her purse or somebody's eyes glitter if they're evil, you know? Right. And uh, Cormac McCarthy is so good, continues to be so good at writing sentences that surprise you in the way language is combined in that he can, uh, Robert Penn Warren called it the stab of actuality. He can deliver whatever, some awful image of a person getting scalped or something, but you see it with this stab of actuality. You see it so clearly. And that's because he's arranging the words within a sentence in an unfamiliar way. So that's a little strange to you. A certain element of strangeness seeps in. And I'm really drawn to that. I don't want my sentences to be difficult to read, but I also don't want to rely on the easiest combination of words that comes into your head most quickly. You know, the cliches kind of become a kind of algebra where a reader starts skimming very quickly through them and not necessarily seeing the images you want her to see. And you have to be careful. You want your reader to go slow enough that they see, but not so slow that they're impeded in the way, say, a Gary Lutz story or an Amy Hempel story kind of impedes your progress through it because the language becomes so thorny. And I love reading that stuff, but I can only read maybe three or four pages at a time of it. And, you know, I'm more interested in writing fiction that can immerse your reader in a much more total experience, something that they can stay in for 80 or 90 pages. Well, you were in in a panel at Wordstock this weekend about uh, writing short fiction. And I know you've written a novel, a memoir, uh, and two short story collections, and you write book reviews and science articles. Um, do you have a preference for for um, the short form, and is that why you ended up on this Wordstock panel? <laughs> uh, I don't know why I ended up on that panel, but uh, I, do, uh, I do think maybe, yeah, I think I do have a preference for the short form. I love reading short stories, and I love that when you decide to write a story, if it fails, you're really only going to invest three or four months, maybe five months of your life in it. And so you're much more willing to take kind of substantial risks, formal risks, risks with language, risks with characters. It'd be scare, a lot scarier to me to say, I am now going to write a novel about a Chinese seed keeper in her 70s. But if I say, I'm just going to write a 30-page story about it, Somehow I give myself a little more leeway. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to invest the next three or four years of my life in this. I'm just going to try to learn as much as I can in the next three months. And if it caves in, that's all right. You know, but when you're two and a half years into a novel and you start feeling it cave in, it's a terrible feeling. You know? <laughs> you're like, I can't. I have, and then you start gripping. You know, you're like a baseball player pressing at the plate. You're like really trying to get a hit and... That's never a good place to be as a writer. Writing is fundamentally a kind of play, and you need to be feeling at least partially playful at the desk, or I think your reader will get bored when you're re- when you're when he or she is reading it. So, uh, on the cover of Memory Wall, you have a you have a quote, a blurb from Dave Eggers, who says you've you've set a new standard for for story writing, and normally I take blurbs and and uh, sound bites with a grain a big grain of salt, but. But in this case, I think he's on to something. There's something um, oddly novelistic about your short stories, too, I think, in the sense that you do things that most people would argue against doing because of, of the economy that you need to achieve in a short story. And, and yet you're able to um, jump from diff- into different people's points of view and uh, have multiple main protagonists in the same story. Uh, as well as have uh, quite an ambitious scope for for something of only 30 or 40 pages. What's your secret there? 
Thanks, man. That's so nice. Uh, I don't have any secret except that I uh, I very much resist the slice of life um, happen in one day, one central protagonist, third person, limited point of view story. I think those have been done extremely well. You know, Raymond Carver kind of got that out of our American system. <laughs> and um, a lot of my students, when they're writing that stuff, it feels a little bit derivative to me sometimes. I'm like, there are so many other forms out there. You know, go look at Bartholomew or go look at Barth or um, Italo Calvino, somebody who's much more whimsical or Borges, somebody who's really experimenting with the form because there are all these other wonderful models to follow out there. It's not just the so-called New Yorker story that we have to write. And the New Yorker is taking risks. Occasionally you'll see a really risky story in there, so I think it's unfair to the New Yorker. But, uh, yeah, thanks. I, I think you know Alice Monroe in particular taught me that you can race through a life in 20 or 30 pages. You can skip an entire decade in a paragraph if you need to. You can move through time. You don't have to feel so limited. And And I think you're right. I mean, why not try a story with multiple protagonists or plural protagonists, you know, a we point of view? I think that's interesting. Uh, unfortunately, we're we're almost out of time, but I'm uh, just curious if you have any new projects you're working on. Yeah, yeah. I'm still working on a World War II book. Uh, it's about the power of radio, actually. Yeah, perfect. Um, uh, I'm very interested in how radio was used both as a tool for propaganda during the war, by Germany in particular, but also how it was used as a tool of the resistance. So... Uh, broadcasting little messages, sometimes even music, especially in France, and people would risk their lives just to broadcast music, you know, just to have some autonomy over what's on the airways. And there's something really beautiful about that. So, Is that historical fiction, or is it going to be a nonfiction book? Uh, it's historical fiction. It's a novel. I'm totally made up people, although I am doing tons of research to try to make it seem as plausible as possible. But right now I have a boy who's very gifted with the circuitry, the mechanics of radio, and uh, a girl in France whose uncle decides to start making some illicit broadcasts. And the boy's job ends up being to try to help locate illicit broadcasts in occupied France. So hopefully their paths will intersect in an interesting way late in the book. It was great having you on Between the Covers today, Anthony Dorr. Thanks, David. We were talking today with Anthony Dorr, the author of Memory Wall, out by Scribner. And you've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs>